And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Marcus Chown. Marcus, let's talk a little bit about the Big Bang and then take calls. In your opinion, what is it? How did it start? Well, nobody really knows the answer to that. No, I mean, we basically, if, if you think of um, the word universe, it has changed its meaning um, throughout history. Once upon a time, it was the six naked eye planets and the sun. In the early 19th century, early 20th century, became the Milky Way. We were part of this galaxy of 100 billion stars. Later, Edwin Hubble, the American astronomer, discovered we were one galaxy among two trillion others in the in the universe. And the Big Bang is a, is a phrase that has changed its meaning as well. So the, the, the basic Big Bang is that the universe began in a hot, dense phase about 14 billion years ago, and it's been expanding and cooling ever since. And out of that cooling dip, debris there have uh, congealed the galaxies, two trillion of them, of which our Milky Way, where we live, is one of them. But now the Big Bang has all these other things bolted onto it. So when people talk about the Big Bang, they often talk about things that have been bolted on to make it fit our observations. So the galaxies, for instance, uh, started off, um, the universe started off relatively um, uniform, but is now very clumpy. So, you know, it's clumped, everything is clumped into galaxies like the one where we live. So it's, how did that happen? Well, the only force operating is gravity, and, and places which were slightly denser in the Big Bang gathered in more material. And in a process like the rich getting ever richer, the galaxies were born. But this process is too slow. It would take something like 10 times the age of the universe to happen. And so we've had to postulate that there's an awful lot of invisible matter whose gravity speeded up the process. And we call it dark matter. And we think that it outweighs the visible stars and galaxies by a factor of about six or seven. So the Big Bang theory now is the Big Bang plus dark matter. And then in 1998, we discovered that the universe was expansion was speeding up. Now, we thought that the only uh, force operating was gravity. So gravity is like an elastic web connecting all the galaxies. So it, it kind of slows them down as, they, as time goes on. But in fact, in 1998, it was discovered by uh, astronomers in California that the universe's expansion is speeding up. So we had to postulate that there's this invisible stuff that fills all the universe, we call it dark energy, and it has repulsive gravity. Okay, and it counts for accounts for 70% of the universe, and it has repulsive gravity. So now when we talk about the Big Bang, we're talking about the Big Bang plus dark matter plus dark energy, and there's something else called inflation that we also have to add. So, so again, all these things are added, and they do seem like, do you remember, I don't know, the Greeks, they could never understand how the planets were moving right. because the Greeks thought the circle was absolutely perfect. So they thought, well, the planets have to move in circles, but they didn't. So they thought, well, what the best thing is, a planet, as it's circling around the sun, circles around a little, it does a little circle within the big circle, and then another circle, and these are called epicycles. And it turns out that you can always uh, mimic any orbit whatsoever with as many of these epicycles. You add all these epicycles. And in fact, it turns out that the planets were moving in elliptical orbits, you know, kind of elongated ellipses, but, but you can do it with epicycles. So it does seem at the moment as if all these things we're bolting onto the Big Bang are like epicycles, you know. But, but the most likely thing is that we're bolting these things on, but we haven't got the overarching seamless theory of the Big Bang and one day someone's going to come up with it, and all these things like dark matter and dark energy are going to, are, are going to seem absolutely, um, 
you know, automatic, and they're all going to make sense. But at the moment, the Big Bang theory is rather like a, you know, a, a, a shed that's where we've, we've just we've just nailed planks all over it. You know, a plank for dark matter, another plank for uh, dark energy, another plank for inflation. So it's looking it's looking a bit shoddy at the moment. However, even with this rickety model that we have, we it does predict what we see. So. So anyway, we, so to cut a long story short, the Big Bang theory is very successful, but we know that there's a deeper, um, better theory that we actually haven't got to yet. And Marcus, what does nothing mean to you? Well, that's a very interesting question because um, nothing isn't really nothing. Uh, since the 1920s, we, we had a revolution called quantum theory. Okay, this was the theory of the microscopic world of atoms and their constituents. I think 70% of the GDP of America comes from devices based on quantum theory. So we're talking about lasers, iPhones, uh, computers, nuclear reactors, all these things. So 70% of the GDP of America comes from these devices. Uh, um, and uh, so quantum theory views the, what you call nothing, the vacuum, as not nothing at all. In fact, the, the vacuum is actually seething with energy. It's like a kind of a, a sea of, of, of energy. And in, in the 1950s, uh, a guy called Willis Lamb, who won the Nobel Prize, he was an American, he realized that this, this kind of um, um, choppy sea of the vacuum, or what we think of as empty space, would affect atoms. So if you think of the electrons, which orbit uh, in an atom, rather like a planet around the sun, the outer electrons are going to be jiggled by all this stuff in the vacuum. And it produces an effect called the Lamb shift. So it changes the light that we, uh, the, the kind of light that we see emitted from atoms. And this was actually discovered, and Willis Lamb got the Nobel Prize. So we do know that the vacuum, what, you, what we used to think of as nothing, is not nothing at all. And in its in its most amazing incarnation, that's the dark energy, because the dark energy, which accounts for 70 percent of the what was, of the energy in the universe, is basically the vacuum. So it's a vacuum with an unusual property that it has repulsive gravity. So in the modern picture, so there is no such thing as nothing. Nothing is, is filled with stuff. So we, we don't know. It's not even possible within physics to have something that contains nothing at all. That's almost unimaginable. Do you believe in the universe there's other extraterrestrial life out there? I believe almost certainly there must be. You know, uh, Absolutely. when you think about, uh, I told you, two trillion galaxies, each of them has about 100 billion stars. Since the um, late 1990s, we've discovered already about 5,000, more than 5,000 planets around nearby stars. And we, so we can see that planets are very common. Um, they're more common than stars. Immediately you're seeing that there are more planets in the universe than there are sand grains on all the beaches around all the coasts on Earth. So it seems inconceivable that life would have arisen here um, but nowhere else. The big problem is the universe is very big. You know, it would take us about 80,000 years to travel to the nearest star, and that would be with the fastest, you know, with a voyage, at the speed of, let's say, a Voyager, NASA's Voyager probe. So it's quite likely that if there is other intelligence, it's a long, long way away, or 
it may have actually come and gone millions of years or billions of years before we were around. But I'm pretty certain there is life out there. Let's take some calls. Joe in the Bronx, it's your turn, Joseph. Go ahead. Hey, George. Happy Fourth of July. You too. Thank Don't forget, you. we're live tomorrow night, too. Right. I should right. say happy Fourth. Although I say happy Fourth of July to you, I should say it's not anything we celebrate in England. That's true. Yes. For obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Marcus. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, wanted to ask. Now, if you take the theory of an alternate universe and Stephen Hawkins, what kind of uh, sorry, you know, I'm sorry. If you take the theory of an alternate universe. Alternate. Alternate universe. Right. And Stephen Hawkins claimed that time travel does not exist. Could that be altered to fit an alternate universe? In other words, if you take the title Back to the Future, um, are we, as Stephen Hawkins speculated, from the future going back to the past? Because I believe that time travel is possible under the right circumstances. What do you think? Well, that's quite possible. I mean, it's a very interesting thing uh, that the um, there's a thing called the second law of thermodynamics, which basically tells you that, that things decay, you know, so, so, so castles crumble, you know, eggs break. They don't unbreak. Castles don't uncrumble. Um, but that appears to be associated with the, what we call the arrow of time and the fact that the, the universe was very um, ordered. So these are all changes from order to disorder. Uh, and, and the second law of thermodynamics says that, that the universe gets more disordered with time. So why does it get more disordered? It gets more disordered because it was ordered in the past. So the Big Bang was very ordered. Now, we don't know why that was. That's a mystery. Uh, and the universe has become less disordered it's become more disordered so, uh, as the universe has expanded. So incredibly, the reason that eggs um, break and they don't unbreak is because the universe is expanding from a big bang. Now, if in the future the expansion runs out of steam and the universe begins to contract back down to what we call a big crunch, which is the mirror image of the big bang, then the universe will be going from disorder to order. So the arrow of time will go the other way. So um, in, the, in the contraction phase, eggs will uh, unbreak. Castles will uncrumble. But the, the, the thing that, here's the thing. If you were in the contraction phase going down to a big crunch, your thought processes would also be backwards. So it would be like a double negative. If I say it's not, not raining, it's raining. Okay, so... If you see the universe, everything going backwards, but your thought processes are going backwards, you'll see everything normal. So it could well be that we are living in the contraction phase down to a big crunch, but believing we're living in the expansion phase coming out from a big bang. So there's complete symmetry between these two halves of the universe. That was a complicated explanation. I apologize for it. I still think we'll never find out how a big bang occurred. Well, that, is, that may well be possible. But, uh, that may, that, I mean, the big problem we've got, here's the problem. In science, we do experiments, right? So we do an experiment in a lab or whatever, and um, we get a certain result. And then somebody else in another lab checks that result. Okay, so they do the same experiment, and they get the same result. So 
we believe that that's correct, you know, because whoever does this experiment is always going to get the same result. But with the universe, how do we do? How do we do the experiment of the universe? You know, how do we do the Big Bang creating the universe we see around us? Because there's only one. We can't do it, you know. So it's, a, it's an unusual cosmology, which is the science of the origin, uh, evolution, and fate of the universe. is an unusual science in that we cannot do the experiments to check it, not, not easily. We're, we're actually inside the universe. So there is, there is a slight philosophical problem in, in uh, cosmology. Let's go to David in New Mexico. Welcome to the show. Hey, David. Uh, hi, George, and hi, I believe it's Marcus. Marcus, yes. Yeah, hi, hi David. Hi, welcome. Um, I, I agree with, uh, like, uh, uh, half of what you say and, and have uh, issues with another portion, maybe not even half. And so let me just, uh, in the interest yeah. of time, let me rattle off the things that are on my mind in the order of importance. And then, George, just uh, uh, cut me off when you want to, and uh, Marcus can respond to whatever interests him. And let me interject. First of all, I, I tried to call in last hour, and, and at a future time, I'll tell you, I, I happen to have uh, uh, known Rahelio. Uh, in Sedona, and I, and I have some interesting things that I oh, think really? Oh, really? Yes. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. At, at the exact time that your, your previous guest was there, I was there also, 2000, 2001, and, and I had uh, experiences with Rogelio, and I'll share them with you some other time. Okay. Um, uh, as to, uh, well, number one, um, because, because he's a family member, uh, if you happen to know anything about uh, Nobel Prize winner physics, 1939, Ernest Orlando Lawrence that uh, ties into uh, anything that you're interested in, that, that's an area of interest. I know that, uh, that uh, Lawrence and uh, Oppenheimer used to have uh, debates in front of their colleagues uh, with some interesting results. So that's one issue. Um, the next uh, issue on my mind would be um, uh, speed of light, travel beyond the speed of light. Uh, to, me, to me, and I'm, obviously I'm not an expert, but uh, we once thought, we, well, we didn't know whether you could travel faster than the speed of sound. Turns out that Chuck Yeager showed us that you can travel faster than the speed of sound. Um, and the result is that simply you won't hear me coming because I'm traveling faster than the sound. And so my theory or postulate uh, is that you can travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, you just won't see me coming. Um, and then the the uh, time travel I- issue. Um, one thing you said earlier in the program that that uh, I had a comeback to was, uh, if time travel was indeed possible, and there were visitors here that came from the future, like Hawking said, you know, where are they? The the question is, you you had presented that you know they may be in a different form that we don't recognize. But another question would be, um, uh, uh, why would they hide from us? All right, I'm going to cut you off at three, David. Uh, but uh, go ahead, Marcus, if you picked up a few of those. Yeah, well, the speed of light thing is is uh, a, a, an ultimate limit, unfortunately, uh, because um, and we see this uh, in our particle accelerators. Um, do you, you actually have to put more and more energy in to get um, closer and closer to the speed of light. And in theory, you would need an infinite amount of energy, so you would need more than energy than there is in the universe to accelerate any massive body to the speed of light. Um, obviously, um, something that's not mass, that doesn't have a mass, like, like a photon of light, that can travel at the speed of light. 
Um, and so that's basically why we, 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 it, you can't get to the speed of, of light. Um, visitors from the future, why would they hide? I mean, this is the basic problem, isn't it, really, with, with um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, ha we, don't, we don't know the minds of, um, I don't know, uh, ETs or time travellers. So uh, I don't know the answer to that. Why would they hide? I don't know. And why would we, would we be interesting enough? I mean, even if you think of um, the Earth, maybe it would be more interesting to go back to the American Civil War or, uh, I don't know, the... the uh, 20th of July 1969, when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. You know, there, there might be other times that, that uh, tourists from the future want to go to. I don't know, when the first pyramid is built or something like that. So it could be. So I, I don't know. It's a really difficult one because we, when we try and think about other uh, intelligences, we only have one uh, example, and that's our own. We've got no idea whether any other intelligence would be made of the same molecules as us, would think like us. Um, you know, we, earlier on, George and I were talking about electricity, and anyone who's came forward in time from maybe 1600 to, to today would think that we live in a world of magic. You know, I mean, they, they, it would just be beyond their comprehension, our electrical devices, our televisions, our computers. Well, the cell phones would drive, drive them nuts. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I could. I mean, I remember when I was watching Star Trek. You know, in in the in the, in the I'm giving away my age now, in the late sixties. You know, and many of those devices have become reality. Yeah. You know, they, their communicators and all sorts of stuff have become reality. So I, I think that the British science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke famously said that any advanced civilization would be indistinguishable from magic. So how would we even recognize them, you know? How would we recognize and advance? You know, in the same way that someone from 1600 would think we live in a world of magic, um, you know, beings from the future, beings from, from extraterrestrials would live in a magical world. So it's very difficult to predict um, what they would look like and their thought processes. Marcus, we're going to come back in just a moment here on Coast to Coast and take final phone calls with you. Marcus Crown with us. And his uh, websites are linked up at coasttocoastam.com. His book is called The One Thing You Need to Know. We will be back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM with your final calls, so don't touch your dial during our Independence Weekend programming. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Marcus Chown as we talk about his work, The One Thing You Need to Know, just came out in the U.S. It's available where? Do you know, Marcus? Probably in good bookstores, but I don't, don't know precisely. Let's go to Carl in Boston, Mass. Welcome to the show. Hey, Carl. Hi, George. And hi, Marcus. Um, you have a Hello. very fascinating um, show going on tonight, George. Um, I'll just say one thing. I know for fairly certain that time travel is real. I believe uh, I can. I can put. I can stamp this. On August of 28, uh, aliens will touch down. That's just uh, something that I heard uh, from someone else. But uh, anyway, um, when you're talking about the glue of gravity, you know, we have the gravitational constant. constant, And, um, you know, is time the same thing? Is it like glue? Or is it not just a perception? Is, is time not already happened? Was the Big Bang really the beginning and the end all at once and we're living in the Matrix? How important is time, Marcus? 
Very, very interesting question um, and almost impossible to answer because, you know, before Einstein, we thought that time was something that ticked along in the background and was, was the same for absolutely everyone. But in 1905, Einstein showed that actually clocks, moving clocks run slow. So if someone was to travel past you, near, you know, close to the speed of light, they would, um, you know, time would, uh, would, would, would slow down for them. And then later in 1915, it discovered that actually time flows at different rates and different gravity. Now, these effects are, are really obvious. So, for instance, there are these things called muons, uh, cosmic rays, which are particles from space, hit the top of the atmosphere about 20 kilometers above our head, and they hit atoms, and they shatter them. And uh, particles called muons stream down through the atmosphere. Um, and they should only travel about 100 meters because they are actually quite unstable. And they have internal clocks, which tell them to disintegrate after about 100, you know, in a short amount of time. But because their clocks run slow, about 20 times slower, because they're moving near the speed of light, they actually get to the Earth before they decay. So they're actually, muons are actually going through you at this moment. Whereas, in fact, they should only go come down through the atmosphere about 100 meters. They come down 20 kilometers because their internal clocks are slowing down. So this isn't in effect. So when you begin to ask what is time, if you, if you think, when we try to understand the world, you know, from Greek times onwards, we started by thinking, what are the things in the world that don't change? You know, uh, maybe a rock stays a rock, you know, and, and um, that doesn't change. But then as science has shown us that more and more of these things that we thought of as, as kind of, the, you know, the, the unchanging bits, actually do change. So we thought time was something that we could all be um, sure of that ticks at the same rate. Now we discover that, in fact, it, it, it isn't. And, you know, earlier in the, in the 20th century, Einstein showed that mass itself uh, can change. So you might think a rock will always be a rock, but actually mass is a form of energy and it can be changed, turned into other forms. So, for instance, in a hydrogen bomb, um, nuclear energy is turned into the heat energy of the fireball. You know, in a, um, uh, electrical energy coming down a wire to you is turned into the energy of motion of a hairdryer, you know, that kind of stuff. So we, we've constantly, science has shown us that these things that we thought were rock-like are not, and time is one of those things. So we're actually looking for a theory of everything from which, you know, that, that maybe explains all we see around us. But we do know that it will not contain time and it will not contain mass and it will not contain... Uh, distances in space, because these things are not fundamental. They have emerged from something more basic, but we don't know what that basic thing is. And you can imagine how difficult it is to try and find a theory of, theory of everything when you know that even time uh, and, and space and mass and all these things have to actually emerge from something more, more fundamental. Marcus, what would you say personally has been the most thrilling aspect of space? I tell you, I've just finished, believe it or not, a couple of days ago, a book about black holes. And I'm totally fascinated by it. Those are strange, aren't they? Well, um, you know, Einstein, uh, the, 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 the Einstein comes up with a theory of gravity in 1950, November 1915. Within a few weeks, he gets a letter from the front, from a, from a serving soldier called Carl Schwarzschild, who's actually found what we call a solution to Einstein's equations. Now, Einstein replaced Newton's one law of gravity with 10. 
So you can imagine that finding a solution, which is basically how space is curved by mass, because we think that, that uh, gravity is the curvature of space, is almost impossible. Einstein thought it was impossible. But this guy, Carl Schwarzschild, had found a solution. We now would call it a black hole. Einstein thought that's ridiculous. Such things can't possibly exist. And then the next, for the next 50 years, scientists, were, you know, people like Oppenheimer, all these kind of people, were pretty convinced that they wouldn't actually exist. And then in 1971, we found the first one. Um, that was from a collapsed star. It was called Cygnus X1. But then the most surprising thing is we've discovered that every galaxy, every, you know, like our Milky Way, has a supermassive black hole in its core. Some of these are about 50 billion times the mass of the sun. We've got a little tiddler in our galaxy. It's only 4 million times the mass of the sun, so thousands of times smaller. But these are a complete mystery. Where the hell do they come from? You know, where do these giant black holes come from? And we were beginning to, to the puzzle is beginning to get uh, more puzzling because of the James Webb Space Telescope. So we're seeing evidence of very large black holes very, very early on in the universe, within the first... Uh, maybe 500 million years of the, of the Big Bang, we're seeing these giant black holes. Now, we think that black holes grow by, by dragging in material and merging with other black holes, but how could they have got so big? We're seeing ones which are a billion times the mass of the sun, only about 700 million years after the Big Bang. So this is a great mystery. Um, and it turns out that the, the supermassive black holes at the centre of our galaxy, or uh, galaxies, have, have an influence on the galaxy itself, uh, which is unbelievable, because although they're very massive, they're very tiny. So the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy is rather like a bacterium compared to the Los Angeles. You wouldn't expect that a bacterium would control or govern the street plan of Los Angeles, but these supermassive black holes do control, they have controlled uh, our, our galaxy, mainly or galaxies mainly because although they're small, they release an incredible amount of energy in their birth, and this does influence the formation of stars. So this is a, until we realized this, we were missing a, a, a major ingredient of, 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 of how galaxies like our Milky Way form. And I could tell you that we are having this conversation because there is a relatively small supermassive black hole in our center of our galaxy. If we were in one of the galaxies with a big one, these, galaxies, these, these supermassive black holes, as they suck in material, that material gets very hot and winds push outwards from them and push away all the gas, which is the raw material for stars. So our, We'd be cooked, basically. Yeah, well, absolutely. And they have these jets, these incredible jets, which come out from the, that are spinning and out from their north and south pole are these unbelievable jets of material coming out at nearly the speed of light and, and stabbing outwards for millions of light years. And when they hit the, the gas of the intergalactic medium, it's rather like a, uh, water from a hose hitting a brick wall. You know, all the material just splashes backwards. So on either side of, of the galaxies that contain these supermassive black holes, you see these what we call radio-emitting lobes, the biggest objects in the universe. Uh, and this is where the jets actually hit the intergalactic medium. So they have a tremendous effect on their surrounding galaxy. So we've got a tiddler in the center of ours, a very small one, and that's why we're probably here. And that was imaged uh, about two years ago by the um, um, Event Horizon Telescope. There was a big, big press conference in Washington. Um, this is an international 
network of radio dishes which effectively created a radio telescope the size of the Earth. And the bigger the telescope, the more you can zoom in on things on, in the sky. And they were able to see the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy and another one in a nearby galaxy called M87. But this, that's a, where, the, where do these supermassive black holes come from? You know, I mean, how do they get bit so big so quickly? We don't know the answers. Let's go to Mike in Connecticut, east of the Rockies. Hey, Michael, go ahead. Hey, how are you, George? Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure and, and I'd like to say uh, happy 4th of July to all of America. And Thank you. Uh, Thank you. my question is, uh, is, is the universe possibly always been there? Always was, always will be. What do you think of that, Marcus? Yeah, well, I mean, that's conceivable. I mean, there was a, there was a, 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 a rival to the Big Bang Theory. Uh, you may have heard of it, the steady state theory. Um, and um, this was the idea that, yes, the universe is definitely expanding, so the galaxies are moving further apart. But in this idea, material came out of nothing in between the galaxies uh, and eventually congealed to make new galaxies. So the universe, as it expanded, always looked the same. Okay, now you may think that's ridiculous, you know, that stuff coming out of nothing uh, between the galaxies, but it's no more ridiculous than the whole universe coming out of nothing in the Big Bang. So most, most physicists, the overwhelming majority, believed in the steady-state theory, which, which in, so the universe is always the same, it existed forever. Uh, and they had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the Big Bang Theory. No one wants to believe in the Big Bang Theory because once you, you know, if everything emerges 14 billion years ago, then everybody, even waiting for a bus, you know, they're, they're going to ask you what happened before, and you won't know the answer to it. Uh, so, you know, no one wanted to believe in the Big Bang Theory. But, of course, scientists really end up, uh, you know, they're forced by nature. They, they have to accept what nature is telling them. And they found in 1965 this heat radiation, which we call the cosmic background radiation, which fills all the space, counts for 99.9% of all the light in the universe, and it's the afterglow of the Big Bang fireball. And that was basically the proof, and Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, who discovered it, won the 1978 Nobel Prize for it. But, but it's still possible that, that in, in the current picture, I should tell you, the Big Bang is not a one-off. Okay, we, in the, what we call the inflationary picture, Big Bangs go off all over this what we call inflationary vacuum, and we just happen to be in one of them. So it is conceivable that, that these Big Bangs have been going off like firecrackers forever. So it's still conceivable that the universe has existed forever, even with the Big Bang, because our Big Bang may not be the only one. Let's go to Joan in Manhattan, New York. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joni, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Hi. I have a question about the creation of the elements. Um, how long after the Big Bang, first of all, were there elements? I mean, what, what existed immediately afterwards? And I know we start out with hydrogen, I guess, and then hydrogen fuses, and we have helium and so on. Is that the way the heavier, heavier elements are formed, that each element fuses with hydrogen? And what what causes the fusion? What, where does this energy come from for the fusion? A minute and a half left, Mike. Uh, Marcus, go ahead. Well, it's a really, really interesting question. It turns out that uh, most of the helium, which are the light elements, so we're talking about helium, we're talking about lithium, were forged in the first 10 minutes of the Big Bang. Okay, so that was when it was hot enough and dense enough 
that the hydrogen you're talking about, they could, they could uh, run in this to each other, overcome their mutual repulsion and stick. So, and, and again, when we look around at the universe, so it's the, this, the Big Bang Theory predicts that 10% of the atoms in the universe should be helium and about 90% should be hydrogen. It's exactly what we observe. All the rest of the elements, which account for less than about 1% of the universe, have been made in stars since the Big Bang. Uh, and basically, the, a star gravity compresses some material, uh, a, a lot of material, and uh, when you squeeze something, it gets hot. So the conditions inside stars, at the center, the temperature gets to millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of degrees, and it's possible to fuse um, helium to make carbon, carbon to, and helium to make oxygen, uh, and build all the elements. And the theory is so good that it predicts precisely the relative abundances of all the elements we see. And the person who basically did that was Fred Hoyle, a British cosmologist who, who basically made his initial discovery at Caltech, actually, when he was visiting Willie Fowler at Caltech in 1953. Um, and so, so that's it. So most of the elements the light elements made in the Big Bang, all the other elements have made it made inside stars. And that's an incredible thing, isn't it, really? It sure is, Marcus. Thank you for being on the program again. The name of the book, The One Thing You Need to Know, it's a great read. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladasor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett, I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then. Be safe, everyone.